In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. You have indeed found No Proscenium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson. This week on the show, Ron Fisher, founder of the upcoming Illumination NYC, talks to us about the Public Festival of Lights that will be taking place in Greenpoint, Brooklyn this month. And Melissa Chalsma, the artistic director of Los Angeles's independent Shakespeare company, chats with us about their new interactive online work, the last syllable. All that plus Immersive 101 and the pick of the week. But first, headlines. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Proscenium. Here's what's in your Immersive Headlines. The 3D social app Stageverse debuted a virtual concert this week from the British rock band Muse. The band's simulation theory live show was recorded at Madrid's Wanda Metropolitano Stadium, and the footage is now available as a 360-degree immersive film and social experience with multiple viewing angles. The virtual experience is available on the Stageverse app for iOS and Android, as well as VR headsets, with a desktop version coming soon. The concert replays at 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 7 p.m. British Summer Time, and 7 p.m. Japan Standard Time on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. And in other VR news, the location-based virtual reality company Dreamscape Immersive, in partnership with Sony Pictures, have announced they're launching a brand new VR experience which puts you and up to five friends into the world of Men in Black, the first assignment. The interactive VR experience will make its debut at Dreamscape's flagship location in Los Angeles on Friday, October 1st. And some big news in the immersive activation world. Netflix has acquired the Rolled Doll Story Company. This means beloved characters like Matilda, the BFG, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Willy Wonka, and the Twits may soon find their way to an immersive experience near you. The plan is to create a, quote, unique universe across animated and live action films and TV, publishing, games, immersive experiences, live theater, consumer products, and more, end quote. The Roald Dahl Story Company currently has 19 TV shows, films, stage shows, and live experiences in development, and it is expected that the steel will expand on these plans even more. And these have been your Immersive Headlines. Catherine will be back later on in the show with Immersive 101. Joining us now is Ron Fisher, the executive director and founder of Illumination NYC, which is coming up on October 7th through the 9th under the Cambridge Park in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Uh, this is a light a festival of lights uh, that's going to be going on, and Ron's going to tell us all about it. Ron, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Noah. Just for starters, uh, the most basic of questions, what is Illumination? NYC. So Illumination NYC is a light art festival that's focused on empowering artists to uh, create installations that utilize the medium of light uh, and to explore how that medium is able to shape, move, inspire, 
and make people think differently both about both about themselves and light itself. Festival of Lights are you can almost say they're like a human tradition. Uh, I, I was I was thinking about like what to ask you, and I was starting to think about like oh like you know how do festival lights fit into everything? And I was realizing that like they just kind of stretch for well before we had electric light. So what's different about them here in the second decade of the 21st century from what might come to mind? Yeah, so I think about this a lot and I think about how to relay this to our audience, our perspective and attending audience. And it really is about uh, moving away from the idea of a light festival for kind of religious or holiday purposes uh, and more towards an artistic, exploratory type of usage of light. And the idea is that uh, I'm really interested by art that is exploring technology, and technology often manifests itself in terms of uh, the way light is played with. And so what I've seen is these artists today are using this medium in such interesting and uh, thought-provoking ways that people don't really have access to. Uh, unless they go to very specific galleries all over the world. And mm. moreover, in New York, it's very, very, very hard to find outdoor art festivals. You know, pre-COVID, uh, it was difficult. Obviously, post-COVID, it's even more difficult. And having the ability to explore and interact with this type of art in this outdoor public setting is something really special and something that we really wanted to create for the New York public and have something that could grow and become bigger and bigger to eventually uh, hopefully occur across multiple sites in in the city. So when you're talking, you mentioned specific galleries. So that brought to mind things like Team Lab and Super Blue. Those, or is it those kind of? Exactly. So there's there's those, there's um, our tech house, obviously. There's ones that are pretty popular in Japan. Um, and so you can, you know, pay for one exhibit or maybe even the immersive Van Gogh exhibit, you could pay to go see one thing in a contained area. Uh, but, but you're really only seeing one installation from one artist in that situation. And you're not able to explore multiple installations, interact with them and have them kind of make an impact on you. Cause even when you don't necessarily have it, uh, an interactive piece, just the fact that it's a light piece, it, you know, shines on you in such a way that it has this impact on you that you don't necessarily get out of uh, traditional art. What's the dynamic change with having it in a public space, in a in a public park, and having a, even a bridge to sort of play with? It's funny because when I first started working on this light festival nine years ago, I was more inspired by the light festival in Berlin and the light festival in Sydney. And since then, there's more cities that have this type of festival. And as we've gotten closer and closer to the event, the thing that's really resonating with the audience and with the people that we're bringing on is actually Burning Man. Mm. And with Burning Man, you have this sense of the great outdoors, of the open wilderness, of anything is possible, of there are no boundaries. And I think that is something that you can only really capture in an outdoor public art festival that lets you explore the art in your own way. And being able to be in that open air environment while you're experiencing the art gives you that feeling of freedom that you would never be able to get in an indoor gallery. Now, is that, you said like what people are getting excited about. So is that is that both the attendees that you're hearing from or the potential attendees, or are we also talking about the artists here? Yeah, exactly. So it's the attendees and it's the artists. And the artists that are reaching out to us and the artists that we're showcasing, many of which uh, are artists that have showcased at Burning Man. For example, Paolo Montiel is one of our artists. He's bringing all of uh, many of his works from Mexico City. And he's the person who does all of the lighting or much of the lighting for Mayan Warrior, 
which is the biggest art car in Burning Man. And it has a kaleidoscopic light show that you can basically see from halfway across the desert when you're biking through. So having that feeling of kind of just like wandering through this, you know, cityscape or desert scape and seeing this light in the distance and getting closer and all of a sudden being exposed to this artwork that you had no idea was there is a very special feeling that we're hoping now, uh, based on all the discussions and art that we're bringing in to, to you know, um, bring forth at this festival much the same way you would experience at Burning Man. So what are people going to be able to find when they when they show up in October? Yeah, so we have over 10 artists uh, from all over the world showcasing. Uh, we're going to have all different installations happening across multiple zones. Some of them are interactive. Some of them are immersive. Some of them, you know, you just kind of walk up to an experience. Uh, and so that side of it is this open air museum. The second aspect is we're going to have DJs, some of which have been in Burning Man, some of which are local that, uh, you know, build a certain vibe, a certain ethos that you're going to be able to enjoy uh, alongside a bar and food trucks. Uh, so it's really something that you can hang out at and enjoy and then go back to the art at any point. And then we also have the immersive aspect. So the idea is that people uh, can come in wearing whatever sort of light outfits they want. And I've been involved in actually light festivals in the past in New York. And I've seen how people really take to the theme, whether you ask them to or not. Uh, and that's part of the uh, part of the festival that I'm most excited about to just see the creativity that people actually bring, because they also just want to be a part of it. They want to be a living art piece, and they want to have an effect on other people, uh, much the same way that the burner community has. What's driving you to make this? You've been working on this for nine years, and and particularly when you know the past year and a half has been just a grind for everybody. So what, what's the burning passion here? Yes. Um, essentially there's been a lot of hopes, you know, grown and then dashed so many times throughout this nine years, as I'm sure you can imagine working with New York city is probably the most challenging thing you could ever try to do in your life. Um, and I, and the funny thing is the thing that's driving me is that I love the city so much that I just think that it's something that should exist. And for me, it's not to say, you know, I haven't been in the art industry for 30 years. I have event uh, experience from my own event production company uh, in my 20s. But the thing that really drives me is my love for New York and my love for light art and just understanding what an amazing impact this type of event and festival can have on the city and the type of people that it can draw and the type of experience that it can create and community they can foster. And I think that that could lead to something much bigger from the city. And I think just getting it started is extremely hard uh, and getting it off the ground for the first year, you know, took nine years, but I'm hoping that once it exists and people see the impact, the state sees the impact, the city sees the impact, then they'd be more willing to partner to keep this going and make this bigger and bigger such that, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people come to New York for this, or, you know, maybe even a million people much the same way that uh, other cities have been able to scale this type of event. It almost surprises me that there hasn't been a big light festival like this in New York, just because of the absolute depth of the art scene there. But is it just that when it comes to this kind of large scale installation and all the projection mapping, has that not really embedded itself in New York? Does 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 the does the proximity of Times Square like affect that at all? I wonder. <laughs> That's a good question. Well, so there actually was a light festival in Greenpoint a few years ago. It happened twice. Mm. Um, and then it stopped happening. There was a light festival in Dumbo one year. 
it drew tens of thousands of people and then it didn't happen again. And so there's obviously something that gets it going, but then whatever it takes to, to keep it going is, is a whole other set of skills and, and set of funding. Um, mm -hmm. And with the city itself, you know, it's not like Cincinnati or Toronto or, or uh, smaller cities where you can kind of get your arms around it. It's such a huge, humongous place with so many different neighborhoods and, and municipalities and business improvement districts that it's such a minefield politically to try to scale something beyond one area or territory or group of people. But mm. it's you have to keep trying, right? Because this is what the city demands of you. It demands of you to rise to the challenge and try to make it happen. Uh, and we hope that this event is a very smooth success. We hope New York, the New York Police Department is very happy with the results. And then that's something that we could potentially, you know, bring forward to to do as like a more exploratory type of event across the city. Because in other cities, it happens across not just three nights, it happens across seven days or a month. And that lets you have the ability to really bring in a, a lot more people than we're bringing in because we are only bringing in 15,000 uh, for this event specifically. Well, Ron, I hope that it does go smoothly and that you're able to get some momentum here because just particularly when we, we talk about this idea of sort of the, the art vibe kind of seeding out from Burning Man. I mean, as someone who's a Bay Area native and as someone who watched the development of that culture and sort of the, the binary between the Bay Area and, and the burn, what always felt to me like the next step uh, was getting that energy out into the rest of the world and it not just kind of being you know, channeled out in the middle of the desert every year and then dissipating, but being something sort of spread and that, that joy and that wonder and that, uh, that verve going everywhere. So, um, exactly. And I would just want to add, like people think about Burning Man, they think it's this big drug fueled party where people are going nuts. But when you get there and when you see it, there's people, there's kids there, you know, there's families there, there's people exploring it that haven't touched a drug or an alcohol for the entire week that they're there. And there's such an amazing, a uh, wondrous side to it that we would love to bring forth. And that's, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. Now the, the, there's, there's no better collection of installation art in the world than, than there. Um, Ron Fisher, what are the dates again? So it's October 7th, 8th, 9th, 6 PM to 11 PM. Uh, we are going to be releasing a little bit more tickets on the website for the earlier slots. So people keep checking. There will be some there. And then we also, um, have VIP tickets if they want untimed entry. All right. And you can find all that at illumination.nyc. Check the show notes for more info. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Noah. Hi, this is Patrick McLean, the Chicago curator with No Proscenium. Each week, we publish our review rundown and gather the review crew for a podcast where we check in with what they're excited and buzzing about. But it is here, and only here, where we reveal the pick of the week. This week, the pick of the week is brought to us by... Hi, Laura Hess, the NoPro Arts Editor. Hi, Laura. Uh, what pick of the week do you have for us? Yes, I'm so excited. This is the new Pipilotti Wrist exhibition. The title is Pipilotti Wrist, Big Heartedness, Be My Neighbor. 
This is at the MOCA Geffen Contemporary in Los Angeles. And this runs through next June, June 6th of 2022. Cool. So plenty of time to check this out if you're out there. But what makes this the pick of the week? Pippalotti Riss is a Swiss artist, a multimedia artist. This is her first West Coast retrospective. It includes pieces from the 1980s, as well as contemporary work from this year. And this multimedia show, it immerses viewers into her often playful and sensuous explorations of liminality, portals, and worlds within worlds. So this is large scale installations and then there's also very small scale installations and her anchor medium video is embedded throughout. And the reason that I am bringing this as a pick of the week is because her work really challenges our shared constructs around the private versus the public, fantasy versus reality, the familiar versus the foreign. And even though a huge portion of this retrospective was made before the pandemic, I believe that her work has incredible newfound resonance. She's really exploring these ideas and senses around separateness and the kind of membranes of our lives, whether those are actual or perceived. And so this exhibition, she has this beautiful description of museums as shared apartments where you can visit each other's brains and bodies. And you do that in this exhibition to this incredible degree, especially after we've had this year of feeling so housed within our little Zoom window frames. Her work inverts that viewpoint. And so you have this incredibly intimate, personal, subjective experience that also feels incredibly universal and shared and communal. And it, the timing could not be more perfect for her work. Yeah, I think that sounds like a really wonderful experience to get out there and explore environment in such a rich and engaging way. I'm super jealous, uh, as always, with a lot of this installation work you go to. <laughs> yeah, it's... um. We've chatted a lot about the, you know, the immersive Monet, immersive Van Gogh exhibits. And this is something that there is immediate gratification. It's really delightful in a very immediate, rich, um, again, just enveloping way. And yet you really feel altered by the experience. You come home, or at least I did, I wound up having this kind of odd response where I was still feeling as though I carried her work or her viewpoint with me. And so it's, it's the kind of work and it's the kind of exhibition that you really do feel changed by it. You really feel impacted on a number of levels. That's so enjoyable. It's not, this is something that Again, you have that immediate gratification, and it's it's just so rich. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Well, that's all I need to hear. If I was <laughs> there, I'd, I'd be there right now. Well, Laura, thank you, as always, for coming on and uh, talking about some of the stuff you've seen and recommending something, once again, that sounds really intriguing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. And don't forget, you can find the review rundown at nopresidium.com and this week's Review Crew podcast just one spot back in your podcast feed. 
Indeed, you can find that and so much more in the feed, even more if you're a Patreon backer of No Proscenium, because that's where we put the bonus material from the podcast interviews. And there's a lot of that on the horizon, as we've been uh, busy bees around here. Speaking of, our end-of-year pledge drive is coming up. We are aiming to get 50 new backers before the year is through. Now, there are two ways to help this year. One is, of course, to join us at patreon.com slash no proscenium. Two or five dollars a month is all we're really looking for. The other is to help spread the word of the work that we do here each and every week. Let's face it. The algorithms are messed up. But when you like, share, and yes, comment on our social media posts about the podcast, the rundown, and the other articles and reviews we publish, the digital gods, they they take notice, and they let other people know that it exists. That's the magic that the algorithms run on, and without you liking and sharing, no one knows we're here, so just please. If you rely on us each week, it would mean so much for uh, for us, for you (laughs) to share this. You know what I'm trying to say. You know what I am saying. Um, it, It is on one level deeply embarrassing and on another level really kind of amazing that all it takes to change the fortunes of everyone involved is for everybody to pull together. So thank you in advance and more to come. Hello, everyone. This is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Proscenium. And now it's time for your favorite segment and mine, Immersive 101. And if you couldn't already tell, the roles are reversed this week. Joining us today is Noah J. Nelson, founder and publisher of No Proscenium. How's it going, Noah? <laughs> you got the J in there. It's going pretty good. Um, yeah, it made it easier to find me on Twitter. So, Noah, I have a burning question for you, and I think you're the best person to answer this. Okay. Talk yes. to me about LARP. What is it? Uh, LARP, live action role playing. Sometimes, if you're if you're an old grognard like me, uh, you you still capitalize your LARP, uh, despite the fact that for the past 15, 20 years, a lot of people don't bother to capitalize it. Uh, that's due to the influence of the Nordic LARP uh, movement, uh, and people just you all lowercase because LARP is a verb. Uh, but LARP started out as an acronym, and uh, that acronym is Live Action Role Playing. So Noah, how is this different from something like Dungeons and Dragons? Um, great question, uh, because they are related. And in some of the earlier days of LARPing, and the reason why I'm here doing this one is because like I used to run a LARP. Uh, back in college, I ran a vampire LARP, uh, specifically a Vampire the Masquerade LARP for for some time. And that was one of the first kind of mass popular LARPs in the United States back in the 90s, it's still around. Uh, Before that, you had LARPs that were really people trying to take what they were doing in tabletop gaming in their Dungeons & Dragons and bring it to life. So a LARP can be anything from 
a little one-off event, uh, what some people call a chamber LARP. Could be, you know, a murder mystery dinner party. Technically, that's a LARP. You have a scenario, you have characters that people are assigned, you take on the role. And the difference between a tabletop game, uh, which you might play with your friends or you might watch on Twitch, where people are seated and they're doing their character voices and all that sort of stuff, is that for a LARP, you are usually dressed up in character, you're moving around a space, sometimes you stay in character all weekend long. Sometimes you spend thousands of dollars to go to Florida and pretend you're on a spaceship, or at least you will be doing that. That's the big difference. Uh, when you are, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use the word, I'm gonna use the word, when you are LARPing and you're all in, you are fully immersed. Oh, yeah. One <laughs> so it sounds like if I attend a LARP, uh, I have a character, a, a fictional character, a role to play. And everyone around me also has a character and a role to play. And we're all bought into a specific world or narrative. So we could all be pirates or we could all be race car drivers or we could all be gangsters. Catherine, and I'm telling you, we could all be pirate gangster race car drivers oh excellent i'm i'm the 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 juices are flowing in my brain right now (laughs) speed racer on a pirate ship with mobsters that's what i'm just saying just saying now noah are there actors in a larp or am am i the actor how does that work um Kind of, yes. So everyone in a LARP is functionally an actor. um, And there are some principles at work. Like LARPing as a hobby has really matured over the past three decades. Um, Moving away from uh, sort of the mindset of early tabletop gaming, which you know, it was born out of wargaming where it's, well, we're, we're trying to beat the game master or uh, the players are trying to beat each other. One of the things that's happened in the maturation of LARP is this idea of playing to lose or playing for drama. And just kind of an acknowledgement that we're not here to win the game in the traditional sense of like getting the highest score. We're here to win the game by entertaining each other, by providing, uh, you know, the most memorable experiences possible for the other players. That said, there are often uh, game master or storyteller or, um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of terms for it, but there are often characters that are controlled by the people who are running the game that have you know, a set agenda, they've got maybe a fixed track, or they have they have a really clear storyline objectives that they're trying to achieve. And they kind of, uh, you know, create a, a, a wake that the players can kind of follow in. That's one way to organize it. Um, and you might hire professional actors, you might invite professional actors, like, you know, back in the day, you know, vampire LARPs would say, get an actor from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to come through and play a character so that all the LARPers could, you know, act opposite someone like James Marsters, a thing which I didn't learn about until years after the fact uh, that made me very sad that I missed out <laughs> on. I was like, he did what? When? Um, so, so, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, it, there are actors. 
it sounds kind of like being in a video game where there's non-player characters and there's yeah. a bunch of other players and we're all working together to tell a really cool story or something. At, at the meta level, yes, we're all working together to tell a cool story. In Inside the game, we may be at cross purposes. Ooh. and And, you know, the ability to kind of tell the difference between you know, when our character's conflicting and when our when our people conflicting, that can get a little blurry. There's actually a concept in LARP uh, that that helps define that that's that concept is bleed. And the idea is, you know, when are when are kind of issues bleeding from the game into reality, when are issues bleeding from reality into the game? Uh, that tends to be more common with long running LARPs, but it's also kind of a, a there's a way that there's an acknowledgement that when you're in an immersive experience like this, you are bringing your whole self to it. Uh, you know, that's what, that's what being activated and having a lot of presence means is that the whole you is there. And when the whole you is there, the whole you is there for, for good or ill. And being mindful of that is something that you hope the players are, but the the game masters the showrunners you really hope that they're aware of that speaking of bringing my whole self it sounds like when i get to attend a larp i have some control over who my character is maybe what their backstory is what their goals are and from what i've heard a lot of interesting things can come from that because it's not really predictable what's going to happen in a larp oh yeah i mean emergent gameplay is the name of the game, right? Um, there's, you know, there, there may be a big scenario. There can even be a big scenario that gets replayed. Uh, there's a game in Texas called uh, The Night in Question. Uh, it's uh, it's a vampire LARP. Uh, the There's kind of a, from what I understand, there's a set scenario each time it's played uh, maybe some things tweak from from year to year. This is this is what's called a blockbuster LARP. That's a term for like a weekend long uh, event. That's one of the terms for a weekend long event. But each instance is going to be different because people are coming with different characters. New players are coming, and the the people running the game set down the scenario, put things into motion, but the players inevitably change it. And that's the thing that's very exciting is that it is a big act of collaborative storytelling. Well, it certainly sounds a lot more sophisticated than a bunch of guys in a field bashing at each other with foam swords. So LARP that's sounds LARP pretty too. cool. That, that's LARP too, though. That's boffer, boffer LARPing. <laughs> Sometimes you just want to get some PVC pipe and some foam and some duct tape, wrap them all together and go hit your friends in a park. Uh, and that's that's fun, too. Well, thank you so much, Noah, for taking us through all of the many different flavors of LARP. Oh, it's just scratching the surface, let me tell you. Joining us now is Melissa Chalsma, the artistic director of the Independent Shakespeare Company, who are known for free Shakespeare in the Park in Griffith Park here in Los Angeles, where NoPro is based. Hello, Melissa. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Hi, Noah. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, you're here to talk with us about a new project 
that the company has online called the last syllable. So the first question is easy. What is the last syllable? My best analogy for it is, is it's a, a, a project that most closely resembles one of those Instagram famous Bloody Marys that has a hamburger in it and a piece of pizza. And do you know what I'm talking about? Those really elaborate, crazy over-the-top cocktails. Oh, yeah. So that's, a, that's a little bit like what the last syllable is, which is it's an experiential online um, exploration of the play Macbeth by William Shakespeare. And it has video elements and sound cue elements and archival elements that link to external websites and things to read and maps to explore. And it's all built on top of cartography software. Cartography software. That's mm-hmm. interesting. It's a it's a ArcGIS, which is the, one of the largest sort of cartography software platforms, has a function called Story Maps, which is a way of using maps in kind of intuitive and visual ways in order to tell stories about the world we live in. Um, I think this is the first narrative project that's been on this platform, um, from what I can tell. So it's uh, been a really big learning curve trying to figure out how to make this platform that's really built for kind of journalism work for a narrative function. But I knew we wanted this function of being able to explore maps. So that's why we selected it. And uh, it's been a, it's been an experience. But it's a I've learned so much doing this whole process because I've been doing a lot of things I have no knowledge of doing as a theater director. And I feel uh, like my synapses have stretched and my brain has expanded as we've worked on it. So what, what led you off in this direction? I mean, I think there's probably, there's, there's, there's a clear inciting incident in the recent past, but yes. um, even, even with that, <laughs> like what, what led you off to explore this particular avenue? Well, I think, uh, the, the inciting incident was that uh, we were, um, and you know, bonus points for such a good dramatic uh, vocabulary of the inciting incident, um, is we were doing um, a production of Macbeth when the pandemic shut down all of the performing arts in Los Angeles. And um, we had gotten, we were almost at dress rehearsal. So we were right about to welcome the audiences into this this production we'd all been working on, myself and um, a, maybe a group of about five or six artists, uh, theater artists. And <clears throat> about maybe, you know, we left and it was sort of, well, well, we'll delay the opening for a few weeks. That was kind of where we left it. And then, you know, a few weeks became many more than a few weeks. And there was this strange experience of going into the rehearsal room. And it was um, do you know the story of the Mary Celeste, that ship that was found floating? And it was, you know, totally empty of people, but it was set for dinner and people's belongings were all still in their cabins and no one knew where all the people went. Um, back, back when I was obsessed with like the Bermuda Triangle as a kid, I think I like heard of it. I, I loved those kinds of tales <laughs> once about them. That like, you know, the, you know, the, the colony in Virginia that was just yes, like, you know, yes. like, like mm-hmm. overnight, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So going into the rehearsal room, it was like we were, it was like it was the Mary Celeste, you know, people's notes were just left where they'd left them. The stage manager's sweater was still on the chair and the water bottle was still there. And it was this kind of very weird experience of being in the middle of a creative project that was just suddenly not alive anymore. Um, and so I think that that was kind of the sort of central sort of imaginative incident that then got me thinking about 
we've done all this work. How can we honor the work we've done and continue this project? And, you know, really early on knew we didn't want to just sort of do a Zoom reading of the play, um, but we wanted to kind of create something with a little more uh, ambition and more opportunity for the audience to engage with it in the way you do with live theater, where you're in the presence of it and that your, your presence really matters to the, the, to the overall experience. So we were looking for something that would feel a little more um, uh, uh, encompassing and interactive. And uh, it, that was whenever that was, February 2020. And it's, it's taken until September 2021 to figure it out. But at long last, um, we've got the site, we've got the project up and running. And it's actually launching today at sundown because today's the autumnal equinox when day and night are the same length. and from this point on for the rest of the year, we're going further and further into the nighttime. As a Scorpio baby, this is the time when my powers start to uh, come into full gear. Yes. So I'm, I'm, yeah. well, I'm, I'm always well, <laughs> well acquainted with the, uh, the equinox. Very um, good. So uh, even night, as uh, I like to call it. Uh, anyway. Uh, um, <laughs> love that. Glimpse behind the scenes. Um, why? So you mentioned using this platform because of uh, the maps. Uh, but this, this idea of kind of a, an exploded look at the Scottish play. Um, oh, uh, that's a great uh, phrase for it. Thank yeah. you. I'm going to be stealing that. No problem. Uh, <laughs> uh, tip jar on the way out. Um, okay. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, why, why, why chase after that? You know, the kind of like, cause you're dredging up some of the, you know, themes of dramaturgy and, and kind of yeah. looking at all the little bits and pieces into it uh, and, and, and laying it out. Um, I mean, the website, you know, there, there's, there's a linear layout of, of the mm-hmm. material, but there's a lot of platform jumping or at least some platform jumping and definitely mixed media action. So why, mm-hmm. why take that approach uh, to, 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 particularly to this story that well okay so I, I could try to think of a more um you know intellectually impressive response but part of that was that we there is a function where you can explore a map and it's not guided um which is kind of i think what you're describing where you can just like explore different points um, on this platform, but you wouldn't, but you couldn't do that and embed video. So, so we, we had to look again and sort of say, you know, obviously we need to have this, that media, the video component is so critical. So that um, then we started looking at um, if we use some of the features on it that did present it in a more linear fashion, how would that work? And I do like that in the end, because it is a little more analogous to watching a play. So I do think it helped me kind of find my way through it, even though there are these kind of discontinuity jumps between, as you're saying, between the media or, you know, bumping off onto another platform, that kind of thing. And I ultimately think that you're going to, as a someone experiencing it, you get a much sort of heavier dose of narrative than you would have if you were just exploring things in a more um, completely exploded way, to use your phrase. Um, But that was actually my original sort of idea and vision was that we'd be, you know, looking at these different uh, maps. And of course, as you've 
noted, like the maps are sometimes literal maps and sometimes they're much more metaphorical maps, like a map of the body, for example. Um, and, and my original idea is people would be exploring it in many different directions and any different order that they wanted to. Um, but as the, as the project kind of evolved, it did, as you noted, become a little bit more linear, um, which I think we've made a strength. Um, but in any case, it's, it was what it had to be. As with so many in things in theater, sometimes you just have to fall in love with the thing that's in front of you because it's the thing that you have. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a real truism, um, particularly when, you know, like you've got, you've got like a, a venue, whether it's like you know, a full brick and mortar space, or you've got like, you know, a particular, you know, spot in the world that you get to play in, you know, so much of the art of theater is, you know, what we call like the art of availableism, like what tools do we have in front of us? Oh, I love that. Do? And I'm writing that down too. You're giving yes. me so many good phrases. <laughs> I just collect them over the years, so I've got a magpie mind. So um, what's – it feels like you've alluded to a little bit, but what's been the biggest challenge working in this format? Obviously, you, know, you went in with one set of, of, you know, you went in with a vision. The, the platform didn't necessarily sustain all of that, but you were able to find, you know, ways to express it. Uh, but it is a real shift from – bodies in space mm -hmm. to elements on a screen. Uh, yeah. So what's what's been the big challenge here? I think it's, I would say that for me that the biggest challenge is that I am completely habituated to finding my creativity in the presence of others uh, as a theater maker and as much as I wish I were a novelist or, you know, where I could go to my cabin and, you know, write a great work, I really don't. I mean, I really find my ideas in the presence of other people. So for me, um, having so much of this work become happening in my own imagination was really strange. It's quite unusual experience. And, uh, you know, where I was kind of just projecting my own thoughts on how the thing is structured and what the adaptation was and what this caption should be and what this should be and in fact what the story is and as we were filming it I realized with working with some of the actors that the sort of a difference between filming something and working in the theater for me is that when I'm in the theater and I'm working with with the the team I'm feeling very much like we are aligned and we're creating a story together in a way where everybody's contribution is, is ultimately going to be represented on stage. Now, I know not all theater directors work that way, but that happens to be how I work. Whereas in film, I found much more often people asking me questions and I was the only one that could come up with the answer because I have the whole thing in my head in a way that typically wouldn't happen in a theater space um, in the way that we work working with you know, Shakespeare, we don't devise theater, for example, where we're typically working with a, a text. Yeah. Often a text that's, you know, centuries old, um, since we do a lot of uh, classical plays. So I think finding um, uh, this sort of creativity and isolation was, was really challenging. And it's, of course, completely mirrored in the character of the artist in the last syllable. She is isolated and she is creating. And it, it was so, you know, what is like dime store psychology or whatever at a certain point we were filming. And I, I said to Laval, who's that playing the artist, I said, Oh, I get it. You're playing me. <laughs> Cause it just kind of didn't really occur to me that I was sort of writing my experience of thinking about creation 
in isolation versus with an ensemble. I hope that answered that question. It does. It definitely does. Um, Melissa, for those who want to check out The Last Syllable, how can they uh, find it? And is it is it free? Is it is it uh, there a little donation action here? What what are the details? Noah, thank you for reminding me. I should probably put a donation button somewhere. Um, and we are a theater company that really uh, tends to give a lot of our work away for free, which is a, a we can have a whole separate discussion about the how that business model works. <laughs> But, oh, uh, I, I know, we, I know, I know nothing about that. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, yeah, anyway. But it is, yes, it is free to access and can't, you can, um, go to I, our website, which is iscla.org. And there's a link there to register. And all you're going to need to do is enter your email and then you will have the link to, um, the story map of Macbeth of the last syllable. And uh, hopefully uh, we've got it all uh, going. It's launching today. So very excited to have people visit. Fantastic. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for the show this week. Before we go, I want to thank Ron and Melissa for being our guests. I want to thank Catherine and Patrick and Laura for helping us hold down the fort. Uh, And also, you can catch all of them in this week's Review Crew episode, which is just one stop back on the podcast feed. I uh, go on a little uh, expletive-filled rant about... um, lax masking policies uh in in that one so uh just uh, prepare yourself uh or maybe if that's not your jam avoid it because uh, uh i don't i don't mince words Ooh, yikes uh all right um a few things before we go and this is the third attempt to record this part of the podcast so uh hopefully it'll go quickly all right i want to talk to you about the next stage that is the summit of the immersive creative community that will be taking place in January in Pasadena, 7th, 8th, 9th, right there at the top of the year. Also looking more and more like we will have that micro festival going on, which I'm very excited about uh, because a festival is our long-term goal here. Uh, Check it. We now have streaming only passes one day streaming only passes for $50 on sale now to the general public at experiencethenextstage.com or immersiveexperience.org if you prefer to use a .org and not a .com. Those are now available to anyone who wants one. And what they get you is they get you one day of streaming access. Now, we will add additional days and those additional days may come at a price either not more than equal to the $50. So the whole thing is not going to cost more than a hundred, uh, maybe less, uh, if we can get the budget to work right, I'm finding the budget right now, or if we sell enough of them and we will set a goal, uh, before the, before November as to how many that is, we'll just go ahead and unlock the other days for free. So, and also we're not going to sell an unlimited number, uh, because you know what? 
Mm, there's a there's a capacity thing at a certain point, you know, just too many people involved. So, just know, those are on sale now. If if you know you're not making it out to Pasadena in January, now, I know what you're thinking. Well, but like, if I don't know what it costs, okay. So here's an update on what it's going to cost. Again, working the budget. If at all possible, we will be as close to the 2020 prices as we can. And the 2020 price was like $600. I think some of them were 650. I'm looking at it at this very moment. We probably need to raise the price because things cost more now. (laughs) I know it sucks. Those of you who were 2020 badge holders, I'm doing everything I can so that your price is as close to what we refunded you as possible. That we ultimately pay is that. Might go up a little bit. I'm sorry. I hate it. I really do. If I could give this away for free, I would. And there is a way we can do that. We'll get to that in a second. I mean, it's not going to happen, but there's a way. It's just like, you know, unlikely. So. Okay. Streaming only on sale now for everybody. Three day badges are going on sale on the 28th, four days from when I'm recording this to those who had 2020 badges. All right. So you will get your chance to start getting your badges. Then you have an exclusive window until mid October. So around the 15th, not a firm date yet, But around the 15th is when the remaining stock of badges that have not been claimed are going to go on sale to everyone. Now, there's one more thing you can do if you are a badge holder from 2020 and you're still not sure and maybe you're still kind of worried about the Delta variant and everything and maybe another variant. I get it. You know, I get it. All right. There's a streaming plus badge that only 2020 badge holders can buy. And that extends your time to pick up your badge, to pay for your badge guaranteed until November 2nd. After that, it's just free for all. Um, Because at a certain point, we have to sell through to make the budget work unless some giant sugar daddy of a corporation drops in and gives us a whole lot of money. On that note, I'd like to introduce (laughs) our partnerships director for the 2020 summit. Uh, Your friend of mine, Jacob Patterson, you might know Jacob from Think Tank. Uh, He is with hijinks these days doing a lot of stuff in the uh, art world and the digital art world in particular. Jacob is on board uh, as he's been for every immersive design summit. Uh, Jacob's been integral to the team. Of course, the logo is uh, his old partner in crime, Dino Nama uh, from Think Tank. Dino, of course, did our logo. So it's Jacob and Dino out there working this angles, these angles for us. Uh, you can reach out to Jacob at jacob at hijinxarts.com. That is H-I-J-I-N-X 
A-R-T-S dot com. So hijinks, like it's hijinks, arts, like it's arts dot com. And just Jacob, you can reach out to him and request the deck. Uh, and that's a sponsorship deck and get a conversation going. Uh, we have tiers that go from, you know, small businesses that, you know, want to just be like, hi, I'm here to support, you know, like, hello, everybody, uh, all the way up to, uh, you know, people who want to have the thing say like, you know, presented by that kind of deal. Right. Um, and, uh, we've got, we're, we're, we're ready. We're ready to take those calls. We're ready to get the sponsorship going on. Um, you know, there's the more of that we get, the better of an experience we can make for everybody. And, uh, if we, you know, somehow got a whole bunch really quickly, uh, we could, uh, keep the prices totally in check. Um, yeah. So, uh, there's, there's always hope. There's always hope. Uh, everything is now, uh, we've got, uh, fiscal sponsorship. So these are, these are tax deductible, um, you know, options in this whole thing. If you just want to give to support to us, um, you know, reach out, uh, if it's, if it's a big amount, you know, reach out to Jacob. If it's a small amount, reach out to me. Uh, we're, we're ready to receive that and, uh, to get it going and to put it through our wonderful, uh, fiscal sponsors at producer hub, uh, who work out of the tank in New York. This is a bi-coastal effort. Uh, we want to make this event, everything that, you know, we've all dreamed it would be, <laughs> and we've been dreaming about it for a long time and not just our team, but what you've been imagining it's going to be. Uh, that mix of salons and talks and festival work and just getting everybody together, get everyone talking, getting everyone reconnected. Um, not a, not a top down affair, but a lateral action. And of course it's not just theater. It's not just immersive gaming. It's not just theme park people. It's not just VR XR. It's all of us together in this great big immersive soup. So, uh, I hope that all made some degree of sense. There is a fact about the passes. I know it's confusing. It wouldn't be this way if it wasn't for COVID. I'm just trying to give people as many options as we can. And I'm trying to buy people time and also signal to us what we're actually working with. Okay. Cause you know, we're going to put our all into it. All right. That's enough of that. Cause, uh, who, who, man. Uh, that, that went on for a little bit. That's almost 10 minutes there. Sorry about that. Uh, you, you probably stopped listening. That's okay. Uh, here go. I'm not, I'm not going to edit this one. Uh, <laughs> that's the way it is. But again, if you're interested in the deck, Jacob at hijinksarts.com. I'll, I'll put it in the, in the, the show notes. Let's do the credits. First of all, I need to thank the sustaining backers of no proscenium who make this all possible. That is Ari Herstand. Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Jay Bushman, David Bassick, Lonnie Hanson, Paul Farnell, Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all. Many of you have been with us for years and years at that level. Others of you have been with us just for years. It, bah, I'm going to get choked up if I think about it too hard. But really, I do. I, that's, that's not me acting. Um... I mean, I'm, I'm, I can be a good actor sometimes, but not when it comes to that. Okay. 
the associate producer of No Percentage is Parker Sella. Parker, I miss our meetings. Come home. Um, music for No Percentage is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. Hi, Siobhan. Uh, Catherine Yu is the executive editor of No Pro. See you at the meeting later. And <laughs> whatever day she's listening to that, that's appropriate. And this monstrosity is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed by me. I'm Noah Nelson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show. Bye.